Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. So, Liz? Yes. I have, um, well, something kind of alarming to tell you. Okay, I'm sitting down. So, our podcast today is with two people who have blood on their hands. <laughs> okay, I'm, gr- I'm grabbing a Kleenex. It's not, gotta cl- it clean is it not off. It's not just me, as usual, but we also have our friend Jordan Schechtel on our podcast today, and he too has blood on his hands because three people. Oh, you have blood on your hands too? I feel like. Why not? Well, okay. I don't want you to feel left out. Thanks. (laughs) I don't want you isolated from the podcast. From human contact or anything. Distance from the blood letters. Um. So we're going to let Jordan, our friend here uh, on Twitter, and he's an investigative journalist, and Jordan has been extremely active on Twitter, uh, as have I, and Liz has too, and there's a small handful of us who have blood on our hands because we are questioning um, the data, the modeling, uh, the outcomes, and the facts as we know them about the COVID-19 outbreak and the destructive, devastating uh, liberty, freedom, rights, crushing measures that have been put in place uh, to mitigate this. So here we are today on happy hour. We're trying to be happy. (laughs) We haven't been happy in a long time (laughs) on our show. Um, Yeah, no, we have not. This is a, a really just surreal time. And as we are recording this on Thursday afternoon, um, we have heard the news a few hours ago about just uh, you can't even wrap your head around these uh, unemployment figures, 6.6 million jobless claims in one week. I mean, those are figures. What is that? 10? It's over 10 million. I think it's over 10 times the last record, which was about 665,000 claims in like 2008. Wow. Yeah. So now it's what, a total of 10 million. So anyway, um, so this is getting real. Uh, States are shutting down. People are locked in their homes on house arrest, uh, thanks to the government. And this is goes all the way from the White House down to local municipalities. So we want to kind of talk all of this out. Um, Jordan, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. And as um, Liz and I know, as people living close to the Capitol, that we are actually fully invested in killing grandma because we're we're questioning the conventional wisdom of federal bureaucrats who, as Liz and I know, are incredibly smart and never wrong about anything, right? Never. We know this for a fact. Never, never why wrong. Do you guys, why do you hate Mima? I don't understand. <laughs> yeah, um, we've just determined that we just want to kill Grandma. It's just pretty straightforward, because right. you know all of our our mansions on the West Coast and in Martha's Vineyard. We we want to protect our mansions, so Grandma has to die. Yeah, I mean <laughs> that is so. That's the you know, blood on our hands thing that a lot of us have been hearing or the small group of us who are daring to challenge this. So Jordan, why don't you talk a little bit? You've been really out there on Twitter, I think very bravely so, um, with some really good stats, 
and asking the right questions. So why don't you talk a yeah, little sure. bit about how this, how your activism unfolded the last week or so? Yeah. So like over the, like I'm a, my background's in foreign policy and national security. So like, you know, big movements of people, sometimes it turns into doing stuff about pandemics. And, you know, before I started commenting on this stuff, I wanted to get a sense of like how governments and the world treated pandemics in the past. And what I found was um, this lockdown stuff is incredibly unprecedented, um, based entirely on models, hypotheses from select scientists. And it's basically a giant social experiment that they're putting us in. Um, mm. Talk to people who are veterans of World War II. Even they have never seen something like this in their lives. Um, basically, in the history of humanity, we've never undergone an experiment on this scale. So people speaking with complete authority on this raises red flags for me. So that's kind of when I started to go from, hey, this social distancing stuff is fine, to seeing that social distancing all of a sudden became um, indefinite house arrest. And now we're just kind of dealing with the outcome of indefinite house arrest on the American population. And this, this continuing um, downward spiral into insanity and not enough people are really questioning it and saying, wait a second, what were the actual pandemic protocols that the CDC was using that these other health organizations were using before we got to this point? And I can tell you with certainty that no one ever addressed a pandemic in this way. That's right. And so that's a good uh, that's a good start to where we are now. And, you know, going back, you kind of look at the weekend before St. Patrick's Day and you had a couple of things happening. The first social distancing guidelines came out by the CDC, which said six feet away from people who are symptomatic for a prolonged period of time. Right. So those initial guidelines actually were pretty smart, made sense. Wash your hands, don't touch your face, et cetera, all the things. Then it seemed like that weekend and we were getting more images out of Italy, people really got rattled and you had kids on spring break and you had St. Patrick's Day uh, events going on, especially my hometown, well, home city of Chicago, I'm in the suburbs, but all of a sudden you started seeing people condemning these large groups being together. And it was kind of like, well, that's not that wasn't really the point of college kids not getting together. It was protecting vulnerable populations, doing the right things for yourself, your family. And that's really when this all, I think, converged. Um, and then the week after that is when the Ferguson study out of Imperial College UK came out. And I think that that just lit a match to this hysteria. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that a lot of people aren't aware of the science and they're just kind of assuming that the federal government is and all these world mm -hmm. governments are directing a scientific approach but you know as we know it's largely just based on models from um, academics that are never really held particularly accountable for what they decide to impose on society and you know you talk about the Ferguson model and in the first paragraph of his model he said this was going to be, you know, he was saying in, in no other words that this is going to be the pandemic of the century, comparing it to the 1918 pandemic. Um, so, you know, that kind of created fear and hysteria. And he was going on TV, um, you know, getting meetings with 
really important federal officials in the UK and the US, um, you know, meeting with the White House task force, meeting with Boris Johnson's people, you know, telling them that if we don't do anything now, there's going to be exponential growth and, you know, millions and millions of people are going to get this virus and millions and millions are going to die and, you know, just set off a panic. Um, and it, it's, it's unfortunate that we're still in, in this domino effect of collective panic, but I'm hopeful that, you know, people are going to start asking questions soon because, you know, it's one thing to be social distancing and lockdown while you can still afford to pay your bills. But once, you know, the, the, the paychecks stop coming and your cards start getting declined, it's a whole different story for millions of Americans. Or you have to spend like 20 minutes trying to get through a government website or on the phone to sign up for your stimulus. Um, I just want to add to something you said, Jordan, I think is important is that a lot of these scientists and in particular the government scientists here in the U.S. and these sketchy scientists associated with the World Health Organization, these these people are are not leaders. They're advisors. They should serve an advising position. If you ask them what to do in a situation where all they want to do is eradicate the virus with no other considerations, they're going to say, yes, everybody needs to be locked up. We need to shut everything down. And if everybody's locked up for long enough, eventually the virus will stop spreading. But their only goal is to eradicate the the virus, allegedly. And again, we don't have really a lot of information and that I'm sure we'll get into that later. But it's the president's job, who's a leader, to take the advice that he gets and weigh it and figure out what the right balance is. How do we safeguard our pu- public health while also not crushing our economy and wiping out our 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 business, the business sector, small and large? So a lot of these people are theoreticians. They don't have a lot of practical concerns other than just getting rid of the virus, which, again, that's not something that happens in a vacuum. And and now here we are, because I think the president is not getting great advice. That's my yeah. And, and, and the saddest part about this is that, you know, this whole project was supposed to help our healthcare system. The whole flatten the curve um, theory was that you know, it was going to build time for our healthcare capacity. And now you're seeing all these stories throughout the nation of healthcare workers getting laid off, furloughed, right. um, fired for not having anything to do outside of the New York City metro area, of course. So, like, talk about unintended uh, consequences of your actions. That's right. And I, I mean, this is uh, one of my best friends. Her daughter is a nurse uh, with an orthopedic practice outside of Chicago, and she was laid off right away, told to go on unemployment and has no idea when the, his practice is going to open again. And so, yes, I mean, that's just one anecdote. Um, so here's the trouble. And we really shouldn't be discussing any of this because, of course, we are not epidemiologists. We are not immunologists. We do not have all the right. Well, Liz, you're a PhD, so you you are kind of okay with the credentialed set. Jordan, well, I have a PhD too. in the humanities, but I do have a strong statistics background. But yeah, I mean, not. So that's an after covering climate for a long time. This is the tactic, right? It's this appeal to authority. And anyone who does not have the right degree 
advanced degree in medicine or science really should not be discussing about anything. We're just supposed to watch as our economy or our livelihoods, our children's future burn to the ground because we don't understand, you know, how viruses work or don't trust in these really not even sketchy models, just unproven models. Um, so I think that that's why some of us are getting so much criticism. Um, but that's what they try to do with climate. That's how they silence you, calling you deniers. You know, there's such a parallel between. But it's not everyone. That's the curious thing. If you look at the people, there are people that are in, in trying to inject themselves into the conversation that are credentialed. And what happens to them is they get immediately labeled by the left as kook burgers or crazy conspiracy theorists. Um that's, that, that, that's what that's what happens, because a lot of the people that go into government in the and even in general, the public health sector is dominated by lefties. I mean, one problem we have in the center right is that we don't have our people credentialed. So I, I always talk about this on the show, but it's so critical is that all these foundations and think tanks are almost all lefties, but they have names that make it sound like they're just they're just scientists. I'm just a biologist. I'm just a chemist. But that's that's not the whole story. And the left is definitely much heavier on people in the public health sphere. And then when you have someone come out and say something and question it and just say, well, this isn't a good way to make up make a public policy or this doesn't these models don't make any sense. They're immediately they're not on CNN. They're marginalized. Right. Or if they go on Fox. Right. They're called. Oh, they're on Fox. Fox is crazy. That's what happens. Yeah, and not only that, like I've been talking to a lot of doctors and scientists on background that, that agree, you know, with asking a lot of questions about this stuff. But a lot of those folks are kind of afraid to speak out because, <laughs> as you said, they don't want to yep. be labeled this, the denier. They don't want to be the person that pushes granny off the cliff. So they just quietly, you know, look at the numbers and they think, oh, this really isn't working out. But I don't want to burn my credibility with my colleagues. So I'm just going to remain silent. Well, also, they, a lot of some of those people get government grants, so they don't right. want their name popping up on any radar. So they're afraid. Nobody needs the grief of like an angry Twitter mob coming after them or somebody calling your employer or the hospitals you're associated with. Um, so it's kind of set up to be a, a a star chamber where we're only hearing from people that have the things that you're supposed to say. Um, and yeah. Liz, that is um another parallel with climate you could yeah. talk to roger pelkey jr you could talk to dr judith curry climate scientists who questioned just a few of the predictions and outcomes who were blacklisted who were actually harassed by the obama white house uh and you know people tried to destroy their careers they were scientists and they were leftists too i mean judy curry isn't but roger pelkey certainly is and to your point, that was the big thing. They were, uh, it, it's people who are dependent on these government grants certainly don't want to go outside of what the accepted narrative is on whatever scientific issue that is. So that's one more parallel. Jordan, you brought up Neil Ferguson. Neil Ferguson study out of Imperial College is where people are hearing the $2.2 million million deaths. Donald Trump mentioned it Um uh, at his briefing on Tuesday. But you have a little background on Neil Ferguson's history. It's not really that impressive. Um, I believe it was you. Can you talk a little bit about 
his background and uh, why we should believe him? Yeah, so there's several things wrong with his, um, you know, there's several things that are sketchy about his current model, but going back into his past, he was the guy behind the um, slaughtering of all of the cows in the entire uh, oh. British homeland because they thought that there was, I think it was foot and mouth disease, was spreading through, um, you know, farm animals. So they're killing off all these farm animals. And Ferguson came to the British government with these dire predictions saying, you know, that millions would die if you don't do this. So they end up spending billions of dollars just slaughtering their farm animals. Their food, and, basically. And there's <laughs> been food. basically, you know, I think there's been less than 100 deaths from this disease uh, in the last like 20 years. So it's just kind of like, and what what does he say? Like, oops, I, I guess I, I got the prediction wrong on that one. I guess it wasn't as lethal as I thought it was. I guess we didn't need to slaughter our entire stockpile of, of uh, farm animals. So, you know, just like the unaccountable thing. And, and, and I think it, it's interesting when we compare the climate stuff to what's going on with the modeling today, because I think we have an advantage with the reality that they continue to model out like the week ahead and um, the month ahead. And we can kind of go back and look at these predictions and say, you know, it doesn't take a, a math whiz to look at the number and say, hey, you said there'd be 40,000 hospital beds needed by now, and there's only 1,000. Like, what happened? W what's going on with that? And of course, you know, we're labeled a denier anyway. But but it, I think it raises eyebrows when people get things consistently wrong and at some point, you know, they'll become fed up with the BS. You know, with the climate models, they say, world's going to end in, in 10 years. And it's not like we can really, you know, 10 years from now, we can go back and say, hey, we're still alive. But these people are, are doing live modeling. And then when they get it wrong, they say, oh, well, we just adjust every day. Well, mm -hmm. you know, national policy is getting driven by these models. So if they're consistently wrong, why should we just keep adjusting bad models? Well, why isn't that guy's phone? Why isn't Ferguson's phone number lost? Right. Like in the private sector, as uh, as a, someone who does business and politics, you know, if somebody lies to me, screws with me, gives me bad information, I'm not going to I'm not going to deal with them again. And yet in the government, we see people that are repeatedly called on, held up as experts. There's total amnesia. I mean, do you think this Ferguson guy would ever be asked a question like, well, you were really wrong about the cows. So why should we listen to you now? Those that kind of question will never be asked of him ever. Yeah. And and he still um, so he admitted on social media that and a lot of people aren't covering this. I don't know why they're not covering this. Um, oh, but I know. He admitted on social media that his um, the, the code behind his projections, um, he wrote it 13 years ago. And this guy is not yeah. a programmer. And he wrote it in thousands of lines of um, primitive code. And he and people were asking him if he was going to make it public. And he said, oh, you know, I'm working with who and Microsoft and we're trying to figure stuff out. And that was like that was like two weeks ago. So he's there's he's hiding stuff, too, in terms of how he developed his projections. And also his projections were based off of a, a flu model. So there's just like a lot of weird things about what he's been doing. It sounds a lot like an academic that is just totally unaccountable to society. Well, they're un he's unaccountable because he's selling the story that people want to hear, right? right? The minute 
somebody comes forward with a model that isn't selling that story, there was going to be a swarm on that person and they'll be absolutely destroyed. Um, I mean, it's, it's very disturbing to see policy based on this. And also look at, look at our economy. Right. I mean, I don't know how much longer we can do this and expect to come back. Liz, I, we're just going to flip a switch. I don't understand. It's going to bounce right back. I mean, it'll just flip a switch. It'll be better than ever. (laughs) Better than ever. It's like putting gas in in an empty uh, gas tank, right? (laughs) Yeah, fill it up. I don't know. Yeah, this is, come on, this is Econ 101. You shut down, you destroy the world's greatest economy in a matter of weeks and throw millions of people out of work and strip all the daily joy out of their lives and force them not to exercise or even go outside to the beach or do and then you know all of a sudden everything's going to be hunky-dory again by the time you know the democrats decide to uh schedule their convention (laughs) and speaking of speaking of government economists um i don't know if a lot of if you guys noticed but they projected three million unemployed this week and it turned out that they were wrong by two x so also, again, another reason not to trust federal bureaucrats when they're crunching numbers. Well, they also predicted that they they would they made a big to do about their bailout or whatever they the right word that they want to use that doesn't sound as um, like bailout. And they thought this will help. And instead, I just keep hearing stories of everybody getting fired and told to um, and, and told to apply for unemployment. So the only businesses that are going to survive this are the large corporations that are either doing quite well now, like Amazon or Walmart or, um, you know, the tech industry isn't super affected like Google. But it's the smaller businesses that are just throwing in the towel or the medium sized businesses. Macy's is firing people. Sephora is laying off people. These are businesses. They're not tiny, small mom and pops, but their medium medium to large size businesses nobody wants to stick around and go through the government grinder to get this money mm-hmm. or they're not optimistic so i don't think that's going to be as big of a help as as they think and the employment unemployment numbers are going to keep rising so it to jordan's point that that's right so i i think uh experts were predicting half of what um we saw this week for filings, which is double what the filings were last week. So let's say, which I think they were way off too, what the projections initially were. I don't even think they were up to a million. The original projections for last week, which came at in about 3.3, was it 3.3, 3.4 million? Um, so this could be part of the bad advice that's being fed to the White House. So if you're President Trump, you're trying to do the right thing. This is a horrific situation no one could have predicted he would be in. He was being impeached during as this pandemic started to spread across the world. So he was a little bit distracted. But if you have economic experts saying, "Okay, look, here's what the unemployment claims are going to be. They're going to be about 600,000 the first week. Okay, then we got 3.3. Okay, it's going to be the same for the next week. It's double. So it could be that he is getting bad expert advice from every sector. And it has just created this confluence of of garbage that uh, is now on his desk and and 
if you're Donald Trump, what do you do right now? What do you do when you see this number land on your desk and you hear the desperation of people all across the country? Yeah, he's got to take his mandate back. Seems to be the only option right now. Um, and I'm seeing and I'm talking to countless longtime diehard Trump supporters that would follow him to the to the edge of the earth who are who are very, very frustrated with him right now. And, and, and very disappointed that he seems to have delegated way too much authority to the bureaucrats. And he's learned this lesson um, in the past in the spaces that I'm work that I work in. You know when it's you know having yeah, he learned having, about the generals, right? The generals, the trash people in the State Department. He's learned about the deep state. Uh, the so you know you could also call it the administrative state. And I think what he's also learning is is you can't. These people will not be held accountable. You're the only person that will be held accountable. And you kind of have to stick to your instincts in these situations when it's so vitally important to take back the reins from them. I guess that's what's kind of surprising is we've all seen how these bureaucrats, and I'm not really saying that about uh, Dr. Burks or even Fauci at this point. I think they're just trained to do what they're doing. Um, but there's no balance. And I do think his initial instincts on this were right, um, that this was like a severe flu and we were going to try to take proper safeguards to prevent it. Um, and then these these models and everything else and the, the people supporting them started to panic him this past weekend. He also he's talked about this a few times. He know he has a friend who has coronavirus and he yeah. said was a relatively healthy guy. And so we know how Trump works and that. And of course, we're talking about his home state and his home city. So well, there who, is bias there. Who, th who thinks if you're not in the political sphere like us, where we follow everything and we have a better sense of how the government works and who the major influencers are in government and policy. If you're outside of that, like like Trump, who came into this n not knowing what the forces at play, who thinks that the scientists are politicized. Th that is, people don't don't You're, think like that. They don't understand that right. that you know that these scientists have <clears throat> an agenda. And you know Julie from covering climate stuff, and you know Jordan from seeing the credentialed experts that are professors and at the deep state and ambassadors that th this isn't just some position that's neutral and they're just an advisor. These are people with an agenda. So Trump comes in. He is not familiar. He's learning about it. It's almost like he's not extrapolating. He's not like, well, if all these generals are politi political, then maybe everybody at the senior level of government is really a politician, which is true. I mean, if you get high enough up in the government at these agencies, in the military, in the different agencies, you are, in fact, there because you are a politician and not just simply a bureaucrat. And he hasn't seemed to extrapolate it that a lot of the advice he's getting from agencies like the CDC and the FDA are based on a political agenda by someone who is trying to enact a certain, you know, has political concerns more than public health concerns. And plus, what does he know? Right. He he doesn't know anything about viruses. I don't. You don't. None of us are virologists. So he has people with alphabet behind their name and they've done prestigious things and worked on vaccines and fought other epidemics. So what does he do? Well, he listen, you know, he listens to them and he doesn't think, well, wait, is this, 
is it, does this person have an agenda? Um, and I don't mean that in a malicious way necessarily. I don't, I don't think they have ex- an extreme agenda. I just think the way that they practice public health is, is in its very nature, like agenda constructed. And yeah. so, and, yeah. and you know, it, it's kind of the same thing, you know, whether it's state department, I mean, personally, uh, I used to data scientist for a couple of years and I was exposed to those circles, um, in the NIH and, you know, the, I don't want to go too much into personal details, <laughs> but yeah, I can, no, I can tell you, more. I can tell you that these people are very much leftists. And I went to, when I went to gatherings, I was the only right winger in the room constantly in, in gatherings of government scientists. So, you know, this, this applies across the board when you're talking about federal bureaucrats is that they tend to have a left-wing worldview. Um, and then we know that leftists tend not to be the best economists too. So it's not particularly helpful when they are potentially being put in charge of the economy and they don't really think twice about it. They think, oh, you know, what is the economy? It's like a construct and it doesn't matter. And I think, you know, when you see Dr. Fauci, very nice man, by the way, mm-hmm. but he just like doesn't really seem to get the economic implications. I, I, he said, you know, it's going to be the quote, the word he used was inconvenience. And he's been saying that in interviews. Um, and I don't hold it against these doctors personally, but I think they just have a very left wing worldview of how society works. It's a naive, it's a very naive. And again, you're right. The economy is a tertiary concern for this crowd. They're like, oh, the government can just, I mean, for some of them, it's not the worst thing in the world to just socialize our entire healthcare system, right? I mean, they probably kind of like that. Um, anyway, so when they're giving advice, they're not, they're not also doing a good job and saying, well, ideally, we could just lock everybody up for two months and not let them come out and see the sun or get fresh air, and that will kill the virus. And they're not, th- they're not advising him, but, you know, also that will just come out and it'll be like the Thunderdome once that's over. Um, it's unfortunate. And I, I think this is going to be another lesson that Trump learns the hard way. But. Well, Jordan, I think to your point, and look, I've been, you know, I've been a Trump supporter, uh, you know, for his entire presidency. I have a book coming out in the summer that blasts never Trumpers for what they how they've tried to sabotage this presidency. Um, so I think all of us have, you know, our our Trump supporting cred is strong. Um, but this has to be this is very alarming and disappointing to a lot of Trump supporters. I mean, I feel it. I talk to people who feel the same way. You could see it on social media. Um, this was this could have been a really pivotal week for him. Uh, and what was alarming too, not just his buying into the Murray model, um, but also the poor explanation uh, at the White House by both the president, the vice president, and Deborah Burks uh, defending this model. When you go out and you tell your country that 100 to 200,000 of them are going to be dead before Labor Day but because of this virus, you better have some solid data and some strong arguments uh, to to assure people uh, about why this might be happening. I mean, that was uh, that was pretty stark. And the way that they presented it and defended it was fell way short, in my opinion. Yeah, and I think it ex- also exposed some poor leadership qualities 
and it shows why they're not really up for the tasks beyond their purview. I mean, you just don't, you just don't, that's not the way that they should be phrasing it, saying that, you know, best case scenario, maybe a quarter million of you are, are knocked off the planet. <laughs> Uh, right. And, you know, we're going to do what we can, but you're pretty much screwed. Like, that's not leadership. <laughs> that's, that's basically trying to set a benchmark. And when we do better than that, oh, we're going to get medals and rewards. But sorry, you know, we did our best. That's not really what the American people are looking for. And let's talk about how that fear is going to persist and continue to impact daily lives, continue to impact the economy, even if things start to open up at the end of this month. You have still told Americans, that a quarter of a million of them, and Deborah Burke said up to 200,000, which goes a little bit even past Murray's model, but she's looking at worst case scenario. How, that's still going to impact a lot of people's behaviors. I mean, I'm actually surprised at how many people are truly alarmed about getting this virus. Um, but this is going to persist for months. And then you're going to look at the uh, uptick in the so-called second wave, which is inevitable, which will probably start happening at the, towards the end of the fall. Um, so this is not anything that's going to get better or go away in the foreseeable future. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm 100% with you. And it seems that there, you know, like the, the war in Afghanistan, there's no particular exit strategy. It's a, it's kind of like a shelter in place thing. Um, the whole philosophy behind flattening the curve isn't to destroy the virus. And I think a lot of people are under the impression that we're locking down at home to destroy the virus when we're really just trying to space it out. Um, so it doesn't really, it doesn't really seem that there's much of a plan here. Um, because they know that people are going to go back to their daily lives eventually and become exposed to the virus. So does that mean we have to hunker down for 18 months until there's a vaccine? Is that, is that what they're trying to tell us? Because that is, of course, you know, incredibly unsustainable, and there won't be a country left in 18 months anyway. Well, let's talk about one of Liz's favorite people, um, <laughs> a guy who is really driving this agenda, and that is former FDA um, administrator, um, Scott Gottlieb, who Liz is probably having convulsions. I am. You're triggering me. So let's talk about his role, his plan that came out of the oddly named American Enterprise Institute, which is the most <laughs> anti-enterprising report that I've seen in a long time. I don't know if either of you have read it. I'm kind of glancing through it. But Liz, let's talk about Scott Gottlieb and his anti-science alarmist um, background. And is he the right guy that the White House or anyone should be listening to? Uh, related to a path forward on uh, COVID-19? Well, I can just speak about Dr. Gottlieb's uh, b behavior on the e-cigarette issue because I follow e-cig policy. I use an e-cigarette um, and I follow all the developments. And he was really responsible for ginning up the teen vaping epidemic, in air quotes, that really started a massive um, you know, government overregulation hysteria without facts. And then the the sort of um, I'm trying to think of the right word. There, there are these little groups that that border the government, the, the nonprofits, these advocacy groups that then swiped in 
funded by Bloomberg to just wreak havoc. But Gottlieb wrote a, a long report. It was <clears throat> very questionable. The methodology was like, have you tried a, an e-cigarette in the last 30 days? And they're like, okay, you're a vapor. And then they're like, oh my God, all the kids are vaping. And it was just, it was just not done responsibly. Um, it, it, so I, I do question his d- judgment on this. I think that it was reckless. So I, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I'm not a fan of his and I look at what he does ske- on skeptically. And I think, I also think he has an agenda too. <laughs> so I think everybody has an Does agenda he have in the any government. Contacts with like big tobacco or anything? Well, he is. Qu- I'm glad you asked, Jordan. So he is on the board of Pfizer and several pharmaceutical companies. And the reason it's interesting that he's on the board of Pfizer now, since he's left, is that Pfizer makes a product called nic- Nicotrol, which is inhalable nicotine. So that would be something that is a direct competitor to an e-cigarette. Now, Nicotrol sucks. If it didn't, nobody would need to make an e-cigarette or they would all just get a Nicotrol inhaler. It's not it's not effective, just like any of these other secondary uh, related to the Nicotrol, the patch, the gum. Those, If those things were effective, people wouldn't come up with alternatives. So, yes, Scott Gottlieb does have relationships with pharmaceutical companies, but that's the game of the government, right? I mean, you go into the government for a while, you go back out to private industry, you make a couple million dollars, you go back into the government at a higher level for a little while, you come back out, you make even more money in private industry. That's the that's the cycle. So, yeah, that's uh, but yes. Gottlieb has some pharma connections. And he wants us locked down till August, right? Uh, he does want us locked down until <laughs> August, until we he can safely trace um, all of our movements, making sure that we're not <laughs> violating any of his, any of his, uh, uh, I wouldn't even say recommendations, orders. So there's some kind of freaky thing about tracing all of us and making sure that we're not assembling in groups larger than Scott Gottlieb thinks that we should. (laughs) But the beauty of the report is phase four, which is when we get to do this all over again, when the virus springs back up, as I said, uh, later this year. So that should make everybody feel, uh, feel really good about, uh, you know, where we are uh, at least till the end of this year. And this guy's supposed to be like on the right side of the political spectrum too, right? He's that's why he was put into that position at the um at the FDA. That that's why he was put there is because you know he was uh, on the right, so to speak. And then the, and now basically he wants to track us like animals, like they track the endangered species, right? Like eagles or whatever, how they mark them, and then they follow them around to make sure how they're doing. Like he wants to turn the American public into that. This is crazy. I think didn't Bill Gates have a proposal like that that he was going to start microchipping vaccines <laughs> so we could make sure that we're not doing anything bad while we're you know in the recovery process? It, it's cra- It's such crazy talk that the way that these people think about society it, it's just it is so insane. And you're right. I'm seeing a lot of um, people in right wing circles promoting Gottlieb as this um, you know scholar of COVID nineteen. And while I think that he does know a lot more scientifically about the virus than we do. I mean, the policy proposals are just totally insane. I, I, I can't believe that people are seriously thinking about uh, pushing forward proposals to lock down until August. Uh, it, it's just mind boggling to me. 
Yeah, Mark Thiessen, who's supposed to be on our side, he had a big column in the Washington Post, was it a day or two ago, touting Gottlieb's uh, mastery, uh, his work. Trump said the same thing, that he had the report and he was going to look at it, which sent chills down my spine. Um, But here's a question for the two of you, and this just popped up. What is really alarming (laughs) is Americans who are so willing to give up their freedoms to assemble, their freedom of speech, their freedom to move around. They are willing to give this up. I'm just looking at a Rasmussen poll that came out, just landed in my email box. 67% of U.S. voters favor banning all out-of-state travelers from entering their state except for emergencies. 68% favor handing out fines in their community to those who are not following social distancing guidelines. Um, so we've now have this nation of Karens, uh, as some of us have said, and it's mm-hmm. in my report. This isn't now guidelines is the key word, right? These are guidelines that one federal agency put forward. No one's voted on these. There haven't been any hearings. Christopher Murray, who's the author of the University of Washington study model or University of Washington model that the White House is touting and everybody is living that is gospel. Nobody's heard from him. We've had no hearings on any of this. But yet we have the majority of our countrymen are willing to give up, not just give up our own rights, tattle on other people, find them, have them arrested if they don't abide by these guidelines. That's pretty chilling. Yeah, it's very disappointing. And like, I think we all share a unique trait in that, like, we don't really care about what other people think of us. So we're like immune to this. But it's unfortunate to see a lot of um my people that I consider friends, um, people, you know, I'm sure in all these neighborhoods that they used to consider cordial, um, acting like secret police monitors and just getting totally out of control um, to the point where they're calling the police on their neighbors about, you know, going for a run too close to another and being not sufficiently six feet away from people. It's just, you know, it's amazing what fear can do to a society and what panic can do and how it makes people act so irrationally. And it just like kind of draws me back to, you know, these atrocities that have been committed in history. And a lot of us like don't seem to, we can't, sometimes we can't comprehend, like how can a society turn against people like that? And I think, unfortunately, we're seeing a live example of what this like herd mentality from from the you know top down is is doing to people. Well, the media is certainly doing their part in that. Right. That's that's their that's that's on the media, really, who is supposed to be in theory a sort of um, check on authority and ask questions and instead is out there selling a lot of fear. They want clicks. They want people to be terrified. And at the same time, you know, they're, they're featuring these horrible stories about people dying alone and choking on their own blood and just horrible stories. So everybody is scared to death that they're going to contract this virus. And then also now they're starting with the, I can't pay my rent. I have no money. And they just are constantly fueling people's emotions so they're not thinking rationally. And that's a good time for the government to, to take advantage or people with agendas to take advantage. 
So I don't see that ending. Um, I do think there it eventually the longer this goes on, I, uh, if this, it seems to me that we are already seeing a bit of a like slowdown of the virus Mm -hmm. showing up and that's with the shitty data, right? Because we, the data, even the data that we have, and I've got like 10 different websites showing me with like real time COVID-19 viruses by state and county and all this stuff. It's actually shitty data. And I'll, I'll talk about that in a second, but no, I just forgot. I totally forgot where I'm going. This is this is what will happen to you, Jordan, as you get older, is you'll just completely talk and then forget what you were talking about. But but, but to the data that we're basing all the all this information, our behavior on, there's no normative element to the reports about test results. When we see how many tests are conducted every day, are those completed tests? Are they is it the day that the test was given or the day that the results came out? Because there's different time frames that that happens. Some happen faster. Some people wait a week. You know, are is are those numbers a week behind? We don't know. So, so that that data is questionable anyway. But what we're seeing, oh, now I remember. So what we're seeing <laughs> in these reported, it, it comes back to me. It just takes longer. Um, but but the, all these charts and the data, it looks like the virus whatever it is measuring is is slowing down we're seeing less cases and we're doing more tests so after a month of slowdown when are people going to say okay i'm comfortable with the risk now right the same risk you get with the flu with the cold with the measles with any other contagious disease that you know, it's not like there aren't any other contagious disease out there. So how far do we have to slow it before people are saying, okay, I'm comfortable. Let's open it up. Yeah. And I think that you're seeing this, um, like the, the most recent data released out of New York City still has the, the top caseload uh, came out on March 20th. So if that's correct, it's certainly like a reason to be optimistic and Cuomo himself is talking about the hospi- hospitalization rate um, doubling, decreasing. Uh, last week it was, you know, doubling at two and a half uh, uh, per week, and now it's doubling at like, uh, or, or every two and a half weeks, and now it's doubling like every eight weeks. So it seems that they're getting at least this flood of people under control, and I don't know what it says about the rest of the United States, the data coming out of there. But there's no indications, um, especially like, you know, the the bureaucrats that keep saying, you know, everything's two weeks away from New York City. I don't exactly know how they've come to that conclusion. None of it really makes sense um, because, you know, people have been traveling. This virus has been around since mid-November and, you know, populations have been exposed to it. So I don't really understand how they're coming to that conclusion. And and you're right. The data is really weird. Um, California has this giant backlog. Of, of cases. So, you know, are the day's numbers today's numbers or is it just like, you know, we just got 60,000 cases from the past two weeks and they're all being released today? But that's critic. That is such a critical piece of, of data to determine whether or not these draconian measures have been successful, which is either a decline in, in death, a decline in. That's the other thing is a lot of the public information that we see on these charts doesn't have useful metrics. 
one of the most important metrics that we should all know is the rate of hospitalization, because that's where we're talking about resources. If somebody tests positive and they don't ever need to go in the hospital, they just have a really bad week or they're super sick, but they don't need to get admitted, they don't need oxygen or God forbid event, then then that's not something that has an immediate impact on our crisis. And the crisis has to do with hospital and healthcare resources and <clears throat> subsequent fatalities. Excuse me. <clears throat> I think I may be getting a no, I'm just kidding. Julie and I joke about that's horrible. Um, so so that those are the kinds of numbers that we need to see, which is how many people are admitted to the hospital, how many are discharged. Those are things that we don't know. So we're dealing with stale data, prob at the very least, it's stale data of how many tests are being given, how much the backlog is, what day's tests are we seeing. So which makes it even more frustrating because I don't know how you come up with policy or even a model. That's why I've talked to Julie about this and I do have experience with predictive analytics and I'm like, I don't know how they're coming up with this model. And there's a lot of other important variables that don't seem to be taking into account like that model from the Washington that came out. I was looking closely at Virginia because I live there and also Nevada where I'm from and where my aged mother lives and I've quarantined her for a month. But my mother also is in every high risk. You know, she has every flat, you know, every thing that makes you at, at great risk. So I'm watching that and the numbers are pretty similar. Um, the deaths, the number of tests, but but they have Virginia peaking in two weeks and then Nevada peaking in the middle of June. Well, right. everyone's How's been locked up. Right. Like how, how is that? How is that even possible? Well, and that's where we need to hear from Christopher Murray. We need to I mean, somebody needs to call him or the White House needs to make him available for questions because that makes that defies it not only defies science, it defies common sense. How is this going to travel from New York and New Jersey to Nevada by the summer to Wisconsin by May to Florida by May? How how does that work? So we know that there's an effect of the temperature on the virus. If it behaves like other coronaviruses, the heat and the sunlight kills the virus faster and makes it less potent. So in June in Nevada, it's 100 degrees and you're telling me the virus is going to peak mm -hmm. or or other other locations, other geographic locations in the states that have warmer temperature than in New York. Right. Which is, you know, not n New England, but it's you know, kind of northeast ish. And then you're going to have a different situation than you have in Florida where people aren't it's it's warmer. There's more sun and people aren't as densely housed and aren't as together. I mean, the important the important elements that I would think need to be put into a model to get some degree to make it useful. I mean, if the if the model's totally wrong, then what is the point of it? Right. So, I mean, I've seen I sent Julie an article today. And of course, that, that rag the Atlantic about, you know, models aren't supposed to be right. That's the gist of the article. And it's just kind of like, then what is the point of it? Like, I can make a model and write it in crayon right now and give it to someone. And that's also wrong. Should we use that? Like, but it it, it is used. So it just seems to me there's a million different pieces of information and metrics that would be important when you are using something as guidance, right? I mean, how do we, you know, mitigate extreme 
the need for extreme hospitalization measures where our resources are taxed and we're putting our healthcare workers at great risk right. there because they're not adequately protect, protected. And, you know, and I don't see anyone, I mean, present company excluded. I don't see a lot of people saying, well, hold on, slow down here. We're just not seeing and, that. And, and I think it's important for people um, along to, it, it's very important to bring in Chris Murray, but people also have to remember that Chris Murray is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and he was handpicked to um, to be the head of this modeling agency, IHME, out of the state of Washington. Um, I believe it was as far back as 2007. So he's been Bill Gates's pet for Bill Gates's initiatives for quite some time. So really, people should start asking questions about Bill Gates too, because what does Bill Gates want out of this? Because he can direct Chris Murray to do whatever he wants him to do. Why the fuck is anybody listening to Bill Gates? He's not a scientist. He even graduate undergrad. Liz, how dare you? <laughs> how dare really? you question yeah. Bill Gates? Now, now that's a bridge too far. Stop. Isn't this isn't this a town of academic credentials? So Bill Gates doesn't have a PhD. So why does he get to talk about this? He has, right? His credential is his wallet, which you also know it holds as much influence as or more than the alphabets behind the someone's name. Actually, that's actually kind of funny because he doesn't he have a college degree. So we really should um, we should make hay of that. People, well, why are you listening to Bill Gates? Jordan, I want to. Um, Liz, kind of to your point, but Jordan, I want you to speak to this. This is something that I've been kind of naggish about, and that is another deficiency in these models. You could both speak to this is we don't have enough data from before March 1st to say January 1 or mid-December of 2019 in the United States. The idea that Murray's model or any of these models just kind of magically begin on February 27th or February 24th, and before that it's a flat line um, where there's no deaths in the United States due to COVID-19, which is impossible to believe because we actually do know that there, there were some. So how is that accurate? And what's the likelihood that as this information lags that you guys were just talking about the data, there's a big lag in testing and reporting of deaths. What's the likelihood that this uh, health crisis already peaked in the United States? We didn't even know it, even though some of the data kind of suggests that we have. Uh, what's the likelihood of, of that? And that's why you don't see these wide, uh, this widespread outbreak across the country, because maybe it was already here. Yeah, that's such an important question. And the, the media, the, the awful, ridiculous, low IQ media is, is not helping with this because they're showing charts and they're saying like, oh, my God, look at March 1st. We had mm -hmm. one case and now we're at, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands. Oh, my God, look at this growth. But the reality is that we've we've reached we reached probably like max or close to max testing capacity where we're getting the results from about 100,000 cases a day. And that's only been going on for maybe 10 days. Mm -hmm. And what we've seen is um, pretty linear growth in, in the extent that whenever 100,000 tests come out, we see maybe like, you know, 15 to 20,000 positive cases. And that's the same trend. It's been the same trend pretty much day after day after day. So when these media people say, look at this chart, you know, look, look at this, look at this growth chart. It's not the real story because we don't know, as you said, and I'll let Liz elaborate on this, but we don't know what was happening before we reached a decent testing capacity. Well, right. that's, 
that's it's very the media is completely misleading the value mm-hmm. of the positive tests because <clears throat> only people that meet very stringent and almost random and not uniformly i mean as somebody who when you work in statistics and and probability you there has to be uniformity every in your metrics you can't take measurements once using um one ruler and the other you're gonna you're gonna just use your finger to see how long i mean you can't do that things have to be done in a uniform and standard normalized way but we so the number of tests that we're seeing people testing positive is completely related to the number of tests that we were conducting it has absolutely nothing to do with how many people are or were positive which we simply don't know. And until we do know how many people have been exposed, how many people in the entire population have been, were at some point or still are positive, we don't have a denominator to calculate any of the other really important things we need to know about how to respond to a public health crisis. So they're using these things as saying, oh, well, we have 2,000 more people tested positive. Yeah, because we just did 2,000 more tests. That's why. Or we, you know, we did more testing that, but the media has, and and also some of these advocates for certain political outcomes are touting these as, you know, very important measurements, and they're and they're simply not, very misleading. Whoops, that's my phone. I'm so important. You really are. It's I am. Not leave. <laughs> it's my. Oh my God. It's the. It's, it's AEI. It says in the caller ID. Should I be worried? He's crank calling you. Um, so Jordan, what do you think the political ramifications are for Trump at this point, uh, both the virus outbreak and this horrific, devastating economic situation we're in? Yeah, it was, it's interesting to kind of see this evolve. And I think more and more people are starting to focus, um, on the direct hit it's taking on their personal lives. And, you know, it used to be fun and it still is a little bit of fun to watch him spar with the media and you you go back and forth to Jim Acosta, uh, com- talk on Twitter about Chuck Schumer. But I'm really noticing a change in attitudes about that kind of stuff that the president's doing. And while it used to be entertaining, now a lot of people are saying like, "Hey, come on, man! Like, I'm struggling. Why? Why are right. you doing this?" And, and I think you're going to see a, a lot of more and more of that in the coming days and weeks if we continue to go down this you know economic and societal slide. People will have much less patience for that kind of stuff and they're going to start demanding results from the president and you know we talked about like the most diehard trump supporters are starting to be like hold on a second you know my my vote is absolutely not it's not so much about you know the vote but it's my confidence in the president is starting to dwindle and you know it's not so much the result in november but um what his legacy is going to be uh, as a result of how he handles this that was, I have to say, when I saw his tweet today about Chuck Schumer, I thought, this is irrelevant. This is, I mean, we need information from you about this jobless report. Um, and I think there was one little thing about getting the stimulus checks out or whatever you want to call them. Um, I do think that he has a window still of goodwill of diehard Trump supporters who are really struggling and panicked about this giving him the benefit of the doubt that he's in a very difficult position and was listening to expert advice, people that he trusts, looking at data that was very alarming. 
but should we still be in this position 30 days from now, that window will have closed? Oh, no, there's no way. There, there's no way that people are just going to stand by and be okay with it for another 30 days. I mean, you know, what Trump, so Trump, needs, Trump needs to come out and just say what the what his plan is. And I don't think he's done a really good job of articulating that. He needs to come in and say, look, this is, you know, this is what I'm thinking. This is what what I want to do subject to, you know, other developments that crop up. Because, again, we, we really don't know a lot about this virus right now. And sometimes you you have to make exceptions. There could be some freakish hotspot that crops up somewhere I, that we'd have to, to handle. But he needs to come out and he needs to be very clear that that he this is what he wants to do. This is a rough timeline. And because it's this uncertainty that people are having a hard time dealing with. And Trump's big attraction, what makes people attracted to Trump is they they felt like Trump gets them. You know, mm-hmm. he talked about issues that matter to the average American who had felt so disenfranchised from the establishment Republican Party and certainly not part of the Democrats. But now all of a sudden he's like up there yucking it up with Tony and Deborah. Yeah. And, you know, and yeah. he's like, oh, this is horrible. And they're like, and he's like, I guess we're just going to shut it down because we're in a war with the virus. It's like that's not really helpful, especially when people are seeing their legacy absolutely destroyed and wiped away and no ability to take care of their family. So I don't know. Well, according to the Murray model and Trump and Burks uh, and Fauci said this, you know, we have a rough couple of weeks. So the height of the Murray model, the total death, uh, uh, the peak of deaths per day, Jordan, I believe it's still April 15th. 14th. I see he moves his modeling around a little bit. So um, if we're not at that apex or, you know, close to it and we don't see these deaths material, I mean, I know it's, it's sounds crass to say, but these next few weeks that he warned about, um, if that doesn't come to fruition or anywhere close, he's going to have to make some really bold decisions at that point to get people back to work, get the economy, get stores and restaurants and everything else back open, small businesses. Uh, otherwise, this could be devastating. Not even just so, his reelection chances, I think. Even so, at this point, after after the fear that's out there, if he came out and said, okay, we're opening back up, what yeah. percentage of normal behavior do you think we would see for a while, right? Everybody's not going to go run out. They're not going to go to the right. restaurants. They're not going to book flights. They're not going to go travel. They're not going to go on a vacation. They're not going to take their kid to Disneyland. People are scared to death right now. And that, and the longer this goes on, the more people are going to be, their behavior is going to, to be altered. I think when we're quote open for business, I'm sorry, Jordan, you were going to say something. Yeah, especially like everyone's kind of tracking the data on their COVID-19 cases, hospitalizations, fatalities in their state. And, you know, what happens if the Murray model is right for New York City, but it's wrong for the rest of the country? What happens if you're living in Oklahoma City, Salt Lake, you know, uh, mid-sized cities, and this thing just doesn't really hit you too hard, and you're sitting around waiting for a few weeks thinking, you know, what the heck is going on? Is this going to force your state's governor into action? Uh, I hope so eventually because people know who to hold accountable for locking them down and destroying their business. And I think that's what the path forward that we're going to see is that um, if it doesn't, if we don't see, you know, the two weeks from New York City, everything's going to be awful everywhere else. 
people are going to start to raise questions about what is the point of all of this if we have such low viral spread in, in my city, in my state, why are we approaching this from a federal top-down level? Why can't we deal with this ourselves in this way? Well, the other thing that's very irresponsible is we're not talking about the way that the the Chinese virus manifests in public versus the way other things manifest in public. So we're not talking about the 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 hospitalization and fatality rate relative to the flu every year we're not like side by side saying well last year in this month x amount of people like people don't have a comparison because the average person isn't keeping track of epidemiological statistics in their head about major diseases about measles or mumps or or just the flu which is is quite deadly so there's all we hear is that this is a pandemic. Everybody's freaked out. They see pictures of like people lying on the street dead and freezers taking bodies in, but they don't understand that something like the flu, what do we lose? Like three to 5,000 people a month from the flu? Mm-hmm. Right. And, and the we're, narrative we're, about the freezers, by the way, is because they wanted to isolate the, those, those bodies from, from everyone else because they didn't want them to infect people. It wasn't because they were out of space, you know, in the morgues. And I, I think that that narrative already has run wild throughout the country. And people are seeing those videos and they think, oh, my God, you know, things are chaos. But in reality, it was just a protective measure. One other thing um, before we move on. and uh, But one big another unknown about New York City is how many of these victims have come here from other parts of the of the world. We I mean, their dad is very vague on this. They do. Uh, refer to foreign residents in New York City's uh, daily data. We don't know how many have come here already infected or spread it within their families or their neighborhood because so much of this is in Queens. Um, And that would speak a lot to the transmissibility or how this plays out for the rest of the country. These are people who flew into New York from, say, wherever, Asia or affected countries like Italy, even before that. I mean, people are still getting here. Um, How many of those people that it just hasn't spread like wildfire, like we've been told that these were already people who were infected and came here with the virus? Yeah, and there's there's flight logs showing that there was um, JFK to Wuhan had a direct flight up until um, the end of January. So it seems that there's like realistic targeted approaches to track this stuff down. And there's got to be um, an explanation why it's hitting particular cities in ways that it's not hitting other cities across America. And we don't seem to be willing to have that conversation in America yet about, you know, realistically what's going to happen. We just have our models. Well, and, and just to to bring this up, some of those models, I, I believe that the Murray model it includes the Chinese data, which is who the mm-hmm. hell knows what that's about. Right. I mean, that is extremely unreliable. And I think and that might be intentional, whereas I think other like the Italy, I don't think it's as much South Korea. But I think in Italy, I think that the breakdown of their healthcare system means that they necessarily didn't have the most accurate data that people who came to the hospital and died in the middle of this were just slapped with coronavirus, even if they were older. I've heard stories even just in New York from people who worked at hospitals saying, yeah, anybody who comes in and dies, basically, we just presume them positive, even though, you know, if they come in in distress, they're like, oh, we can't be bothered with the test. We're just, you know, admit them. And then they go into the body count, which, again, that just speaks to 
how dirty the data is, which makes bad prediction, bad models. And I think at the end, when this is over, if it ever ends, um, you know, we'll look back on this and we'll just see what, you know, how poorly this we we use the information that we had to construct our policies and what action was taken. It's it's quite scary. Yeah, and, and I think this is like this is why we have been, you know, people that are on the right are advocates of like a small decentralized government because big problems tend to happen when you put enormous responsibility into the hands of bureaucrats that are so far removed and tend to be completely unaccountable to the people. Yeah. All right, should we... Uh, I think we should wrap it up because we don't want to take up any more of your time. And we've actually gone longer than normal. Um, we could chitter chat all day, but we don't have time. And well, I guess we don't. We do have time because we, we don't have anything... It's not like you have somewhere to go, right? Right. You know, <laughs> we're all stuck whether we like it or not. I guess like I guess it's just you could go binge watch something on Netflix and that's kind of a highlight of everyone's day now. But um, thank you so much for joining us, Jordan. And we will um, we'll probably have you on again because you are a good guest. And for our listeners, sure. we will be back. What, Julie, did you say sure. listener? Jordan, share his Twitter handle so people yes. can him. Yes, Jordan, give us your, your your digits, if you will. Yeah, it's, it's just my first name and last name, Shachtel, spelled S-C-H-A-C-H-T-E-L. Very much appreciate coming on. It's always great to talk to you guys. Thank you so much. And we all put Jordan's Twitter handle um, in our show notes. And so we will see you next week or maybe before then, depending on our, mo- our mood. <laughs> so thank you for joining us and see you later. Thanks for listening to Happy Hour with Julie and Liz. We'll see you next week. Bye.